Hello, and welcome to the Yeah No Journal Club, episode number five. In each episode, we dissect an article from the psychiatry literature with the goal of understanding both the clinical importance of the study and key aspects of research design and methods. We start with a single confusing sentence from the paper and go from there with the goal of getting from, yeah, no, I don't get it, to yes, yes, this totally makes sense. I'm Dr. Adrian De La Cruz. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and the Peter O'Donnell Brain Institute at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. I'm Marissa Toops. I'm an assistant professor of psychiatry at UT Dell Medical School in Austin, Texas. Hi, I'm Adam Brenner. I'm professor of psychiatry and residency director at UT Southwestern in Dallas. The paper that we're going to be talking about today is from Brett Clements and colleagues. The title is Identification of Distinct Psychosis Biotypes Using Brain-Based Biomarkers. It was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in 2016, volume 173, issue 4, pages 373 to 384. The sentence to start with is in the method under data integration within paradigms. Here it is. Principal component analysis reduces data dimensionality, maximizing signal to noise by replacing a group of variables with a linear combination of those variables thus reducing information redundancy and retaining maximal meaningful explanatory variance across all measures. Marissa, how are you on that sentence? I'm pretty good. Okay. So I think I'm somewhere between 20 and 50%, although I'm actually worried that that means like, I could also be totally wrong and actually be at 0%. It probably makes sense to start sort of with what they did. And this is different from the other papers we talked about because this is not a treatment study. It's nosological. Generally, when we refer to the structure of medical um, diagnostic making, we call it nosology. For this study, they started with 711 adults with psychosis, and they're going to refer to them throughout as probands, right? The people with the disease. They also recruited 883 first-degree relatives of those people with psychosis, and then 278 demographically similar healthy controls. On both the programs and the relatives, they did the DSM-4 structured interview. So they were very clear about exactly what would the precise psychiatric diagnosis of all of these people be. That's important, right? Because they're going to make an argument about psychosis in all forms across schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but they want to be really clear about what their DSM diagnosis would be. Then they brought everybody into the human laboratory setting and they had them complete several different laboratory-based tasks. All of the tasks have been previously identified as abnormal in schizophrenia, and many of them have direct analogs in animal research, so that they're also, I think, trying to make some arguments around the basic biology of schizophrenia, or another piece of this is going to be about making better animal models of schizophrenia by trying to match up how the animals perform on the tasks with how the people perform on the tasks. The things that they looked at were the brief assessment of cognition in schizophrenia, pro and anti-saccades tasks, and that is like eye movement task. Stop signal tasks. And what's involved in a stop signal is that you are like told, push the space bar every time this number appears on the computer screen. 
um, but don't push the space bar if some other number comes up. And so you look at how well people do at inhibiting the response to stimuli. I mean, and they're sometimes also called go, no, go is another common term for them. And then they looked at auditory paired stimuli and oddball evoked brain responses. And um, this comes from the idea that people with schizophrenia have impairments in sensory gating, that the normal response to paired auditory stimuli <laughs> is if you experience one auditory stimulus. It just you... means two beeps. Yes. Two, and they're usually like a couple seconds apart. And it's normally a, a soft beep and a loud beep. And the idea is if you get just a loud beep, you're likely to startle to that. But if you get a soft beep before a loud beep, you will startle less when you have um, heard the soft one first. People with schizophrenia generally hearing the soft one first doesn't decrease the amount they startle and doesn't decrease their brain response to the loud beep. But it is not, it is not a clear separation between psychotic people and non-psychotic people. It is a, it's, the ranges are not the same, but they are overlapping. Specifically in this, they measure the EEG response to that. So they put electrodes that are on the auditory cortex and they actually are looking at peaks in the EEG that happen after they hear the beep. Um, what's the oddball? That seemed like such a strange and unfortunate term. <laughs> so it's like an unexpected auditory stimulus. You hear musical notes, musical notes, musical notes, and then you hear a whistle or a bang. So most of the time, if you are listening to music or something like that, you don't attend, you stop like thinking about each note, they all sound kind of similar. It's all the violin. And then like, if something new comes in, then you pay more attention and you can see a brain response to a new type of stimulus the oddball. They did structural MRIs, which is just um, like resting in an MRI. What is the shape of the brain? Um, we know that patients with uh, schizophrenia have structural differences in their brains. We also know that some of that at least is related to antipsychotic exposure. Um, and then, and they're, as Marissa said, they're doing all of these things and doing EEGs at the same time. Now we are actually heading into your confusion. Adam, because they have collected all of the data. And then they have to figure out how they're going to, what they're going to do with the data. And part of the thing is that each of the tasks that they did gives you multiple variables. So if you look at just the stop signal task, you could choose to analyze reaction time. You could analyze like percent accurate to the go signal. You could analyze the number of misses which is like, you should have gone, but you didn't. And then you could also choose to analyze the percentage of incorrect responding, which is responded when you shouldn't have. Each of the measures they took is going to have lots and lots of variables like that. What they want to then start doing is saying, how do we like numerically summarize each task so that we are pulling out the meaningful data from it? What carries information are variables that are different between different people. Because if the variable is pretty stable across lots of people, be there's minimal variance, then it's probably not contributing to what makes these people and their disease different from each other. Yes, there has to be variance for there to be information, right? I mean, like it doesn't help to put, is, is this a human in the model because 100% of the people are human? Then how I start to think about it, <laughs> is actually as like arrows 
um, and arrows that have both direction and length. Vectors, you mean? Yes, vectors. Yes, this is vectors. It's important to, basically it's like each component is a linear model, so a weighted line, weighted average of all of the things that go in it. And so you do it when you think you have an understanding of how variables should go together. You don't put in a cognitive variable with an eye movement variable because you don't think those have anything to do with each other. They're not related. So you, you have to have some sense going into the PCA that you're adding together things that you think are related to each other and can be in some sense added together. It, it requires you to have some sense of why variables should be grouped in a certain way to do it. And you're, what they mean when they say principal components is that those components are assumed to be perpendicular to each other mathematically. So like the x-axis, the y-axis, the z-axis, right? Those are perpendicular to each other. So you're trying to find the component that is on each of those axes and they're orthogonal. And so that means that you have to be picking things that you think, right, those components should not be related to each other because they're perpendicular to each other. And when we do it for in the psychometrics, it's always debatable whether we understand what that means. So there, there are some assumptions in doing PCAs, but basically you're trying to break down the data into a series of uh, vectors. And each of those is, is supposed to contain a summary of a type of information, like the information on their impulse inhibition in the, that was measured in several of these tasks. You're trying to capture how much that variable differs across the, the sample, right? It has, so that has to do with the magnitude of it by using the variance. So the list of things in the rows in table two what they say they have the backs, the stop signal task, and the anti-saccade errors, those are all principal components that they developed by combining other variables. So there's a total of eight principal components that they put together, and then they use the back score without doing anything to it. There's one more step, which is how what's in those tables is what they call a factor score. So that comes from making those PCAs, which are directional, they're vectors. So you don't want to use those in the model, you want to use um, a, just a number, a non-directional number. And so they um, collapse each patient's data onto the PCAs and give each patient a score on each um, PCA, which is their data relative to that component. Um, and so it's no longer directional, it's just a score on that component for each person. So what we see in the, in the first three columns of, of the tables where they're just showing by DSM diagnosis before the clusters, that's just the average of the factor scores for each group in that component before they cluster them. Because they were including the backs in this, which was not a principal component, they normalized everything into effect sizes and they give it all in effect sizes because you can't put the backs in there with these other ones without normalizing everything to a standard unit, which in this case is an effect size unit. Does that make sense? And it's effect size relative to the healthy people. So this is what cluster analysis does, is it generates lots and lots of different solutions to the problem of, okay, I have 770 people with psychosis. They each have a score in each of these domains. Which of these people belong together and which don't? The clusters can range from everybody's all, all in the same group together. But also have a cluster where each person is in their own group, right? Neither one of those is really meaningful. So the math yeah. is trying to look at what is the 
numerically ideal solution that creates a meaningful number of groups that puts like people together and different people in different groups. Generally speaking, these can, it can be done in two ways, starting with 700 and whatever individual groups and then binding people together. And then some methods go the other way where it's one group and they're cut apart. All of them involve coming up with a metric of distance between the points. So you can imagine, I mean, it literally mathematically is a nine dimensional space with just this like cloud of points in it. Um, which we can't imagine that, but you can imagine a three-dimensional space with a cloud of points and you're trying to like make cuts through that cloud to make them into groups. But they did a couple of standard ways of um, determining the number of clusters. So the method they use k-means cluster analysis, you have to tell it how many clusters. So usually there's a first step where you determine an optimal number of clusters and they did two methods to choose that, um, that, that gave them three as the answer. And so then basically you start accumulating, um, taking dots and pairing them with all the other dots. And what you're trying to do is come up with a solution that minimizes like a metric of the total dot to dot distance in the system, basically. So like if the total dot to dot distance in the system is minimized, you've got your clusters. The results of all the math they did was they were able to divide the 770 people with schizophrenia into what they call three biotypes and that the biotypes show statistically significant differences from each other and from healthy controls on a couple of different variables. Um, so there's biotype one, which shows low cognitive control as well as low sensory motor reactivity. There's biotype two, which is medium relative to the others, cognitive control and high sensory motor reactivity. And then there's biotype three, which is the highest cognitive control and in the medium on the sensory motor reactivity. And then there's that, that thing that is like pretty cool actually around their first degree relatives who are grouped based on what their proband is, follow yes. the same pattern. Which um, is the coolest part of the whole thing yeah. if you ask me. Yes. And in, and in, um, and so these look to be durable things, seem to be biologically determined, maybe, are not just related to um, antipsychotic exposure, because we know the relatives have not had antipsychotic exposure. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the, author, the author's argument is that they are detecting real meaningful differences across people with psychosis that are not directly related to their DSM diagnosis. So, so I, I think in some ways the question is, do you believe the hype? They have to show that the, the groups have clinical differences and or treatment differences. It, it, this paper was just a midpoint of a study. They're not done yet. I will believe it if they show differences in, in treatment or prognosis. Because people with different DSM diagnoses wind up in the same biotype. Got the idea that there's then some kind of divergence in terms of what happens in terms of the appearance and the phenomenology, actually what the person winds up suffering from and experiencing and being observable. So that's really interesting, but it's not really important unless those underlying differences or samenesses actually have an implication about treatment. Yes. Yeah. If they don't beat the DSM diagnoses in terms of treatment outcomes, then we might as well not 
popular, even if it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Helen Mayberg's group did a similar thing with depression, and they showed that one of their biotypes responded to TMS much better than the other biotypes. They had four. Um, and so they really did clinically test it, and they showed that there was a clear outcome difference in terms of treatment. And I know that BSNP is also doing some work like that. You know, it seems like there could be infinite number of ways that you could take all of these variables, and there must be some ways that you could then put them together that would make it look like there's a thing there. And maybe that's yes. just numerical BS. <laughs> And how do I, how do I know, how can I, as a yeah. reader, right. look at these kind of papers and, and know what to trust? And, but I think the good thing about a study like this um, it, is that they will have published a design paper up front that describes it in much more detail about why they made the choices they made in terms of the statistical analysis. And so they have a lot of opportunity at that stage to then, I mean, this is a multi-step process. So the grant is reviewed for its analysis plan. The the design paper is reviewed for its analysis plan. At this point, it, you know, some of it is about c communicating all of that in a clear way. That's like, really helpful because, you know, one of the things that we always try to do with residents and journal club is we want them to be skeptical readers of the literature. But the tricky thing is, is knowing what, which parts to be skeptical about and which parts you can, uh, like the fact that you're pointing to things that they that they said in the paper that they published a methods paper before that that's something that can be that i can read then as as real reassurance that this has been you know vetted yeah yes and i mean this type of study is extremely expensive it doesn't just undergo peer review of the grant. The Institute itself heavily reviews this type of project, these huge consortia. And so it's been heavily vetted before they gave them the money. Most of the time that process is self-correcting, that you really do bring the experts to the table and you pick the things that have the most data, the most we have the most experience with and that have the most vetting. To go back to your original question, Adam, this is the thing. We, to me, if you really want to, um, ask the question, is this meaningful? What you need to do as a control condition is you come up with a set of dummy variables, like the number of letters in their from last name, like the sum of the five digits of their zip code. They're, so you don't want stuff that's random because there's no data there, right? But you want things that are dummy variables that have nothing to do with their thing, like, you know, um, that are pulled from various demographics things but then transformed in some way and you come up with a set of variables like that and you run the same math on it and you have to just show that your solution with the bio variables separates the patients more meaningfully than this set of dummy variables does that, and we don't that, do that oh that would yeah no, that would be neat to see yes and it's not difficult to do but but because it really answers the question of like is any of, is this just garbage in, garbage out or not? Okay. Um, so if we circle back to our starting sentence about principal component analysis, Adam, what do you now <laughs> understand about how this study used principal component analysis to uh, make stuff happen? You know, um, I, th I think what I understand is that the math is really complicated. 
but but that there are real established methods of doing this kind of math and that it's not a kind of just fishing around and rearranging the numbers until you get something that's statistically significant you know that idea that we've all come to feel suspicious about studies that don't have you know a clear hypothesis at the beginning right so so what the two of you have told me both about the math methods and and how you know this how you use the variances to break down the data and into these vectors and then how the cluster analysis works in this very kind of set sort of algorithm of of I, I love the description of you know trying to find the way to cluster things to have the total individual dot to dot distances be the least that that you could come up with right so so I can't um, feel like at the end of this that I could myself judge the math or judge the methods of the paper as a reader but I feel a lot uh, better equipped the next time I'm looking at a paper like this to be able to kind of look for the things that would make me feel like this is being done according to good systematic peer-reviewed you know previously vetted kinds of approaches yeah I, I think that's totally fair and I think if I think this paper is a good model for this is this is what a study that's doing this should look like mm -hmm. this is a high quality version yes. of this kind of study yes it's it's well done I would say Thank you for listening to this episode of the Yeah No Journal Club. Prediction of the Yeah No Journal Club is supported by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology Faculty Innovation and Education Award, awarded to me, Adrian Dela Cruz. The opinions and views shared in this podcast are the views of the individuals and do not represent views of any institution. Specifically, the opinions expressed do not reflect those of the ABPN, UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT System, or the state of Texas. You can find the Yano Journal Club on your favorite podcast app. Please rate us and write a review. Visit our show page at www.yanojournalclub.simplecast.com. That's Y-E-A-H-N-O journalclub.simplecast.com to learn more and find links to the article abstracts. We love your suggestions. You can email us directly at yanojournalclub at utsouthwestern.edu. Do you need materials to run a journal club? You can find our journal club superstar curriculum, the Adpert virtual training office, or by visiting our show page. Keep listening so you can stop worrying and love the literature.